Welcome back to the Yates and Vila podcast. I'm Adam Cohen, joined by Henry Winklehaig. And tonight's episode doesn't cover too, too much. Won't be our usual hour and a half show. This one might be about half hour to 45 minutes. So for those listening to the driveway home or just wants a quicker episode, this one is for you. <laughs> yeah, it may not be a marathon episode, but we're going to still have an awesome sprint of baseball. A little bit of news to give you, uh, you know, getting back to spring training. Things starting to heat up a little bit. Uh, but also getting to continue our position preview series with first base. Uh, pretty exciting position to talk about. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And being a first baseman by trade back in the day, uh, it, is, it is always exciting for me to get to talk about the old stomping grounds. Henry, are you a lefty? I am. So that, that always helps. Uh, and then I guess that, that kind of limited other positions where I could play. I guess I kind of got stuck at first base. Gotcha. Actually, uh, one time when I was playing in Little League, I had a, there was a lefty catcher on my team. You never see that. so But he can handle himself. He was able to just throw out everybody. So, yes, lefties can be catchers if they want to. I love to see that. I, later in life, I actually became a pitcher. Uh, but my, my dad would catch bullpens for me every now and then. And he's also left-handed. So, somehow he tracked down a left-handed catcher's mitt uh, to be able to, to do that. I'm sure you're... Friend in Little League must have had one of those too, but they are, they are pretty hard to come by. Yeah, I know what you mean. I used to have this baseball coach, and he was a lefty too, so I, I used to pitch as well, and he would get me with the lefty glove as well. He found, found like this really nice one too, so I guess they might be rare, but they probably know how to make them really cool too. Yeah, get a little bit of customization, and here goes out to all the lefty catchers out there. We appreciate you guys. We believe in you guys too. So let's dive right into it. So one of the biggest news of this week was that the Mariners CEO, Kevin Mather, resigned. And I've never heard of this guy because usually you don't really hear about CEOs or presidents, but he resigned because he made insensitive comments about several players in his organization, including Julio Rodriguez, who is a Dominican up-and-coming prospect, and Hisashi Iwakuma, who is a Japanese pitcher that was solid for the Mariners for a couple of years and now works for the team. He basically said they don't speak good English and he's tired of paying their translators, which is really bizarre to think about because so many teams have translators for their foreign-born players. And baseball is such a multicultural sport and has a lot of Latin ball players as well. So this was some very terrible news to hear and obviously wish all the best to the Mariners players who were affected by this. Not a good look at all uh, from Mather there. And just very insensitive comments, no place for that. And especially like you said too, Adam, the way the game is trending and it's where you know international talent pool is, is so important to the game and, and today's uh, MLB that just you know, have some respect for those guys and everything that they mean, not only for your franchise, but to the game as a whole. Uh, so that, that was just disheartening to hear that and then not only uh, the cultural insensitivity there he goes on to basically admit that they're manipulating Jared Kalinick's uh, service time saying he didn't sign an extension so they're going to keep him down in the minors as some form of punishment he also called long time they're pretty much their best player for the last decade or so Kyle Seager said he was boring uh, and then I think there was something else too um trying to think of who the pitcher was, but basically made up an altercation about him, like pushing a teammate up against the locker. The whole thing was fabricated. I want to say. I think that was Marco Gonzalez. Okay, right? there we go. Yeah, it was Marco Gonzalez. Thank you. But it was, it was just all over the place, just saying all, all kinds of crazy and offensive things. And then 
rightfully so the pressure mounted and calling for his resignation and it's good for the Mariners franchise I believe to, to be moving away from that kind of attitude especially with you know the, the the tension that already exists between the players and the front offices slash ownership across all of baseball that it, it's just really highlighting a lot of that distrust and, and kind of the tension between those groups and, and this doesn't do anything to help that. I think also this is just so untimely as well because of the whole anti-racism ideology. You can even find this on MLB's website for tips on being anti-racist. So the game's starting to get more involved with this. I think also Jeremy Lin just spoke out about how Asian Americans are having a rise in hate crimes as well. And then he does this to Iwakuma. So just a really, really poor look for the organization. But at least he's out of there and I also just can't believe that he was president of their team if he's just going to say all that negative stuff. Of course, it's going to bite you in the butt eventually. Right. Like, I mean, you, you're you used to front office guys like trying to, you know, build up their team, say nice things about them and want to support those guys. I mean, that's how it should be. That's, that's what the role is for. You're not there to tear down your own players and, and try and make them look bad. So it was, I mean, not only um, – unethical of him but i mean unprofessional too and just not the not the kind of guy that you want to be have calling the shots in your organization so good to see moving away from him yeah i agree and i also want to go back about jericho on it too because this isn't just a player being disgruntled with his organization this guy was tearing it up in double a of course it's a 2020 season the mariners have nothing to lose since they weren't going to make the playoffs anyway they were a little bit competitive but not really they easily could have called him up so there is grounds for bases that could have came up last year and this is a terrible look too because he's one of the best up-and-coming players in the game and to already start him off on a bad foot they might not be able to make that extension in the future keeping in the long run as well and it's interesting i heard uh in the past couple of days i think fernando tatis had a quote coming out where he said that because his service time wasn't manipulated that he was given the reins uh, right away that that helped build up trust and and then ultimately uh, was the reason why he was willing to go out and sign that long-term extension that we saw so it's just i mean it is a larger issue across the game everybody is is manipulating service time in some way or, or almost everybody i guess tatis would be an exception to that but you know, you still don't go out and, and blatantly say it that, yeah, we're, we're keeping him down in the minors on purpose, like admitting to, to playing that game. I mean, even if, if that is the way that the rules are and I mean, that'll be something that changes in the next CBA. You, you can't just flat out say it like that and to say that you're doing it as some kind of punishment. No team's ever that blunt about it. I'm sure you know this case very well, Henry, but with Chris Bryant, they the Cubs manipulated his service time, but they never said, oh, we he wants to sign this big extension and or wants to bet himself, so we're just going to keep him down in the minors for an extra year. No, no one says that. that. Even if it's true, you don't speak it into existence as well. Yeah, you got to play the game and be like, oh, he, he needs just a little, little more, a couple more at-bats in the minor league level. He's not quite there yet. I think Chris Bryant needs about – about 10 or so games in triple a before he's, he's ready to be a big big league ball player and we all know that you know that there's uh that that's not true that he would have been ready to go from the jump but you yeah, i mean like i said you can't just flat out say it yes we're manipulating his service time that's that's just dumb and you gotta wonder also if the service time will come up in that cba agreement which as we've mentioned before in our show will be ending in 2021 because players, of course, want more power and want to 
be able to get paid as, as they think, and especially like young players like Tatis who don't get to make as much money early on because they're young and they're under team control. So that could come up, and I wonder also if we'll see more extensions like him, more teams just trying to work with them rather than try to manipulate them because, of course, that will leave a sour taste in their mouths. I mean, I think that'd be great for the game if we can kind of just start to mend that relationship between players in the front offices and ownership if, if try and get a little bit better uh, working relations and just, you know, be upright and, and you know, be honest with your guys about what they're worth and, and give them their props and let them perform at the major league level. Because, I mean, that's that really is a silly rule that in most of the time it works out to where guys are just spending the first couple weeks of the season and, for clubs doing that, you get a whole extra year of service time. I mean, it, it's kind of a no-brainer as it is right now from the franchise perspective, why you wouldn't uh, just go ahead and do that. But I think something needs to happen with that rule. And at the very least, it's going to be discussed in those CBA negotiations. And even before they accrue major league service time, the players and the owners are always at it with each other because in these arbitration cases, the player – you know, hypes himself up. They bring their agents. They say, this is why I deserve this contract. The team says, no, you're not good enough. This is why we're going to lower you down. So these arbitration hearings are never fun. It probably causes a lot of distrust between the players and the team and know how invaluable they are, how they're just never peace in the franchise. So the system's a little bit corrupt. It's, it's not a great relationship. And the relationship already between players and owners has never been great in Major League Baseball. It absolutely is a, a corrupt system, and it leads to those bad relationships and potentially labor stoppages, which is nothing that any of any baseball fan wants to see following the 2021 season. Uh, but it's it's just not great for the game, and, and it's not good from a fan's perspective either because then people looking from the outside, they're like, oh, all these baseball players or baseball as a general or baseball in general is just a greedy sport, uh, which, I mean, I, I tend to sympathize with the players that they're just trying to get their – fair share of the revenue and it's it's a multi-billion dollar industry so I, I think the owners are mostly to blame there and and that they're just being a bit greedy i would say i would agree with that too and once again we saw this of how the players were the ones who really helped out their minor leaguers during the pandemic the most of the teams just didn't really care about them so always always for the players we want the best for them yeah, they're the ones who, who play the game. They're the ones that are fun to watch. I don't tune in and, and watch my Cubs games because I love the Ricketts so much. I want to see KB and Javi Baez and Anthony Rizzo, and I want those guys to get big contracts so they can stick around forever. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and I, I think the Ricketts are one of the better owners, but overall the owners definitely could have better relationships with the players. But – Moving on into some MLB transactions that occurred this week. Braves manager Brian Snicker signs a two-year extension with a 2024 club option. And Snicker's been incredible for the Braves. They've won the division for the past couple of years now. And this was a, a very deserving contract. I agree. Definitely an, an up-and-coming roster and kind of wanting to keep that momentum rolling in the future. So I think a good move to go ahead and lock up Snicker uh, through 2023 at least with that 2024 club option as well. The one, the pushback that I would have to that is the Braves still haven't really been able to get over the hump. Something that I know has kind of plagued them for the better part of this century. The, the Braves are always competitive, always winning divisions, but still not able to really get there and win the championship. And as, as I was looking into this deal before the podcast, Adam, I was reminded that 
they blew a 3-1 lead to the Dodgers in the NLCS last year. And I, I had completely, that slipped my mind. I didn't realize they were up 3-1 and blew it. And not to say that's all on Snicker or anything, but that would be the, the pushback that I have. I, I still think it's a good deal, but it, I would be more in favor of it, I guess, if the Braves had had, I mean, that's an obvious statement, I guess, if they had won a championship by now. But that, I guess, would be the devil's advocate, the, the pushback I would offer. There's just something about Atlanta and blowing 3-1 leads. We saw that with the Falcons and the Patriots a couple of years back. So I don't know. That's it's maybe a little bit of a curse for them right now. But oh wait, no, it wasn't a 3-1 lead, but it was, I'm thinking the Indians there, but it was they blew what was it? A 31 to something lead. A 20 to 3, I believe, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a huge lead in the third quarter. Maybe that's where the 3 came from, but that, regardless yeah. the point holds that Atlanta sports in general has, is, is a bunch of choke artists for the most part. And I appreciate you saving me there too and finding where I knew the reference from. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the Braves very well could win a championship in these next couple of years. So I don't hate the move at all. Uh, I wonder what he got paid to see if he he got another ridiculous contract like they give out to Ozzy Albies and and Ronald Acuna. Because I know those guys got absolutely shafted by the front office and their deals. So it'd be interesting to see what Snickers making. Yeah, that actually, honestly, about Albies, that goes back to where we're talking about extensions, too, because if teams bet right on their players, then they can get them for even more affordable prices, and that's just that cat-and-mouse game, too. Absolutely, and, I mean, Ozzy Albies never should have signed that contract, in in my opinion, but, I mean, it, it does kind of go back to the trust thing. If, if you're willing to give him, you know, what, seven, eight years or something, what he got on that deal, and it's making a commitment to him. Granted, it's very, very low cost and team friendly, but I mean, he wanted to secure his future. And I guess if, if nothing else, it's something of a trusting relationship. For sure. Also going back to the manager point, it's funny that you mentioned how the Braves haven't been able to go over the hump because managers have been fired for less. We even saw this with Rent Retoria, former Cubs manager as well, who got booted from the White Sox despite taking them to the playoffs. And even just a couple years back for the Yankees when Joe Girardi couldn't get the Yankees past the Astros, the Yankees didn't re-sign him and they got Aaron Boone instead. And they absolutely have been managers who have gotten the ax for less. Um, but I mean, as a whole, they, they've been pretty, pretty good and, you know, haven't been, they haven't bottomed out at any point. Haven't been very upsetting in any particular year since he took over in, in 2016, I believe was his first year. So, and they're still a young team, which he, he clearly is, building and developing those players in a way that the front office and ownership is happy with. So looking to continue that momentum. And it's not like, um, it's not like MLB manager contracts are the hardest thing in the world to get out of. I know there's usually some kind of buyout option and you can get rid of him. If, if something catastrophic does happen, another three, one lead blown perhaps in the next couple of years. Yeah, that's true. And he's still been a pretty good manager. And this isn't of course, not a bad move. Just we want to point out the history behind it as well and speaking about a player with who's had a lot of history in major league baseball shinso chu is pretty much gone from major league baseball together as he signed a one-year 2.4 million dollar deal with the sk i think that's how you pronounce it sk wyverns in the korean baseball organization he had a 16-year career in major league baseball he was famous for signing a seven-year 130 million dollar contract the rangers back in 2014 other accolades include a one-time all-star hit for the cycle and also had 200 homers and 157 stolen bases. 
So he was a great player. I remember this guy was just an on-base machine. He was a 2020 player as well, and he was just a very fun player to watch too. He was an, an all-around great offensive player. Uh, I know the defense a little bit shaky, perhaps later in his career as he got older, but you can't really fault him for that. As everybody ages, it's at some point. And really, what I thought about Chu and the context of him moving to KBO is he is definitely a casualty of the NL not having a DH this year. Is that just kind of lower that cut his options in half. And and I think he definitely would have ended up finding a job somewhere in baseball. If the NL did have that universal DH this season, uh, because I mean, he's lost a step to where you wouldn't necessarily maybe want to commit an outfield spot to him. But I mean, you pointed out the stats there, Adam, he could still hit. Uh, so I, I think he would have found a home if that hadn't been uh, the direction they moved forward with this year. You're exactly right. He was just a year removed from having three straight 20 homer seasons and other players who could have easily signed a DH role in the NL could have been Edwin Encarnacion or Yaziel Puig. And those two are still having trouble finding jobs. And both of those are very deserving of a major league deal too. And yeah, I'm interested to see what happens to them because it's not a sure thing that they will have jobs to start the season. I mean, as we said at the top of the show, it's, it's spring training now. We've I think there actually may have been a spring training game today. I know the Mets and Marlins were supposed to go. Did they, did they end up playing? It's either today or tomorrow. We, uh, we should know this. Yeah, <laughs> it I is. know. I, it's coming at some point. <laughs> yeah, coming soon. Yeah, it really does. I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. We're, I mean, we're just that deep into spring training that, and I mean, this happens kind of more and more that we see guys, free agents go this deep without having deals, but. I mean, not having the DH for, for players and with that skill set, it, it definitely limits their options. And that's another reason why I expect we'll see the universal DH with the new CBA. I think we will too. And just more to your point about free agents signing later on, we also saw players such as Craig Kimbrell and Dallas Keuchel sign contracts midseason. And it's so important they get to play spring training because that's how they prepare. They're seeing the competition again, just getting thrown into the fire. It's not right up to major league level, they play in the minors for a bit, but it's not the same thing. Spring training is supposed to be drawn out. You're supposed to have your ups and downs, hills and valleys, and or peaks and valleys, excuse me, and then you're supposed to go to the major leagues and everything's okay. But that's not the case. And I think that's especially important for pitchers needing to get stretched out. And and you look at the how short the season was last year where – our inning leaders uh, for on the pitcher side are throwing something like 70-ish innings, and now you're going to expect them to go out and throw 200 this year. So you, you really need those spring training outings to get stretched out, get your arm in shape. But from a hitter's perspective, too, I mean, just having your timing ready to go, it's it's hard enough to, to hit a baseball against major league pitchers um, as it is with, with all the regular preparation and everything, but to just come off of the street and, and do it, you know, with no spring training game action, anything like that is, is – asking a lot and, and kind of maybe setting those guys up for failure. Honestly, I can't even imagine players signing late 20 years or so, 20 years or so ago, because nowadays players work out so much in the off season. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. They took time off. They went fishing, did a hike, and they spent time with their families. Now everyone is trying to get the edge over each other. So they work out the entire off season, do bullpens, they get themselves prepared. But if this happened 20 years ago, they would have been just utterly wrecked if they had to start midseason. They probably wouldn't even have too many minor weeks since two. They would have just said, like, all right, you're on that mound in two weeks. And they probably would have gone screwed over. 
I completely agree, Adam. I think the the offseason conditioning that we see, and on top of that, the you know the programs, the throwing programs, guys are doing like driveline baseball, all the analytical movement too. That that players are doing more, better than ever before and and preparing themselves on their own. But still, there's there's no replacement for that live game action that you get in spring training and getting the timing down against live pitching or or getting up uh, you know pitching to live batters. It's just no replacement for that. And, and so I think it is, is very important. And we see guys uh, do struggle all the time when they're late, late getting there and, and not having a home and able to just get a regular spring training ramp up. There is nothing better than real game action. You can practice as much as you want, but you got to have that real game action if you want to be set to go. It's, it's more than just getting ready. You need that game action and then it puts you in that specific headspace too. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm happy to see that we got the games coming, man. We, we may not know exactly when they're starting, but we know it's within the next couple of days at least. We've waited all winter, baseball fans. Spring training is back, which means the regular season is right around that corner. We've got like 34, 35 days, something like that. But who's counting? Baseball is for all intents and purposes, my friend. We're back. And it's so refreshing to have a full – 162 game season. It's, I know the pandemic, of course, is still raging on. Still going to be in this situation for quite some time. But just have a normal baseball season and have just something in our lives now to be normal, that just feels really good. Yeah, I mean, and things are looking up from the pandemic perspective, too, mm-hmm. which on top of that, with 162 baseball or 162 baseball games to look forward to, I'm on cloud nine, man. Life is awesome right now. For sure, for sure. Another player besides, just moving on, another player besides Chu that is no longer Major League Baseball, that also includes Kelvin Herrera. He just retired, and he had a 3.21 ERA and 513.2 innings pitch with the Royals, the Nationals, and the White Sox. He is best remembered winning a World Series with the Royals, and he was part of the big three. And I honestly think that 2015 Royals team, they – they pretty much changed the game of relievers because they had Greg Holland, Kelvin Herrera, and Wade Davis. And then every team after that was trying to get a big three because they saw the Royals didn't have the best rotation, did a great bullpen, and they still won it all. I did kind of revolutionize the way the bullpens are used in today's game, uh, where it's it's not just having that one lockdown closer guy at the end of the rotation that you really do need to have a handful of guys who can pitch in high leverage situations. They certainly did, and Kelvin Herrera will be fondly remembered for his contribution uh, to that championship team. And just wild to think. It wasn't all that long ago that the Royals were, were that competitive and were, were a very, very good team, obviously, winning the championship. But kind of fallen from grace here in the past couple seasons. But, I mean, they're not the worst team in baseball, but I, I, mean, I don't think anybody's picking them to go out and win a championship this year. Uh, but, I mean, just being a small market team like that and, and – limited resources that makes it all the more special what Herrera and those Royals were able to do in 2015. They had a lot of homegrown talent as well that core of Eric Hosmer, Mike Moustakis and even Salvador Perez who's still on the team. I know speaking of team friendly deals they signed him to one and he was big part of their core as well and he still is so very fun team to watch and even this year they added a couple pieces some people even say they're a very dark horse team and a loaded AL Central. I I don't think they're going to make the playoffs but they might win more games than people would expect. 
Then maybe they can beat up on the Tigers and try and <laughs> climb the way up there. I know Cleveland may struggle a little bit too. I still like them a little bit better than Kansas City on paper, but they are improved. Uh, you added Carlos Santana, Andrew Benatendi, so I think that offense will be better. Uh, you still got Mondesi, you got Jorge Soler. Uh, when you mentioned Salvador Perez as well, so they're they're not terrible. Uh, they got they added a pitcher too. Is it Mike Miner? Okay, there we go. And Holland, yeah. I think too. Okay. So, hey, dark horse yeah. perhaps. <laughs> yeah, nice to see one of the big three reunite with the Royals, too. Holland was such a big part of that team. Herrera was, too. This guy threw 100 miles per hour. They really had all three of them throw 100, and this is what I'm talking about with how they revolutionized the game because everyone in the bullpen nowadays throws 95-plus. And if you're not, then you have to be a side armor or you have to be a like Tyler Clippert or something where you just throw a fastball change if your changeup's just crazy wicked. Or you better have a slider that is, is breaking all the way across the plate or something. If you're not throwing that high gas, that high 90s gas. Uh, they And, yeah, they, they had some of the w- most wicked stuff that we can remember in, in recent bullpen history. Uh, so good to remember that 2015 Royals team and, and all that Herrera meant to the game. Definitely. That was a very fun team to watch. And speaking of Tyler Clippard, actually, he just signed with the Diamondbacks. He signed a one-year million contract with a $3.5 million mutual option for 2022. Other signings that we saw this week was that Jake Lamb signed a one-year $1 million contract with the Braves and Ryan Tapera, who somehow got a down ballot MVP vote because not because of his performance, but because Ryan Tapera sounds a little bit like Trey Turner and that he was an MVP candidate, but he signed a one-year 800,000 deal with the Cubbies. So couple of interesting signings, low risk, low, low moves, but that's what you expect towards spring training. And don't hate on Ryan Tapera, man. He, he deserved that MVP vote last year. He had, a, he had a decent year in the bullpen. I know he had a uh, 3.92 ERA, actually, I look up in now. In 20 innings. It was under four. So maybe that's worthy of an MVP vote. But you know what? Trey Turner probably deserved it more. So, But whatever. Thank you for that typo. And thank you for for all the jokes that I see in Cubs Twitter circles about I'll bring him back to Para and whatever the bullpen needs help I like to see it. Um, interesting uh, to see Jake Lamb moving to the Braves. I think he was a bat that that we really thought of as as a good upside hitter a couple of years ago. So maybe there's some some bounce back potential there and what is already a very strong lineup. Don't expect him to get too too much regular playing time, but maybe he can surprise some people and, and end up being an impact bat off the bench. And kind of interesting, too, to see Clifford going to the Diamondbacks. I know they're kind of in the dark horse territory at best in that NL West division. You got the Padres and the Dodgers out there. That is really, really tough, but certainly helps their bullpen. Um, so, I mean, that could be end up being a good signing for them, but not, not sure putting them over the top and catapulting them into that race by any means. Yeah, this is more just a deal for the Diamondbacks to just fortify their bullpen a little bit. They can't be – you know, completely terrible. Their bullpen isn't great as it is, especially after trading away Archie Bradley last year. So Clippard might be their closer. He's going to be their setup man, but he'll be one of their better relievers. As of Lamb, I, I like this deal for the Braves. Doesn't cost them too much. He has always been a power threat. He's struggled in recent years, but he did have a nice sample size when he was traded to the A's from the Diamondbacks in 882 OPS in 13 games. So perhaps he can relive some of that magic and help out the Braves a little bit. And then Tapera, of course, just helping out that Cups bullpen, which 
Henry knows pretty well, needs a little bit of help. <laughs> yeah, especially now that uh, as we start spring training, you start to hear uh, the managers committing or not committing to their closers. And Craig Kimbrell getting the vote of confidence from David Ross that he is going to be the closer, which, I mean, makes sense. You pay him all that money. And for how terrible, terrible he was uh, for stretches in 2020, he did kind of rebound in September. So. Mm -hmm. Hoping maybe there's still some life in that arm, but it doesn't hurt to have a guy like Tapera to be able to fall back on, especially, I know, Jeremy Jeffress uh, still out there in free agency. He was probably our best bullpen arm last year and doesn't appear that we're bringing him back, but you can never have too many bullpen arms is, is the bottom line. Definitely. I mean, even saw with the Yankees, too, just going back to my home team because they added Justin Wilson and they also added Darren O'Day and they already had a decent bullpen as well before though of Chapman, Britton, and Green. So they're just trying to fortify that. The Cubs are trying to do the same. And you know, to pair would be a good late inning reliever for them. And Kimball too, of course. I hope he I wish him all the best. I mean this guy was really on a Hall of Fame track. He even started out better than Mariano Rivera starting out his career, but then he's really kind of fallen off since the twenty eighteen World Series with the Red Sox. It's been a fall from grace for him, but I mean, he's, he's got time to turn it around. He's not ancient yet. I think he's like 34 ish or so. Mm -hmm. so and, he, and he's still throwing decent ish velocity. It's not what it used to be, but yeah, maybe, maybe a turnaround in the works. I certainly hope for it. If, if the Cubs are going to be playoff contenders in this year. Definitely. And finally moving on to our top 10 first baseman list and just going right into it. My number 10 pick is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. So he lost 42 pounds before spring training. And it's so funny because I saw this on Bleacher Report and they said every single player goes into spring training saying, I'm in the best shape of my <laughs> life and this year's going to be my year. But I want to believe the hype for him because you don't see players losing 42 pounds. You see them losing 5 or 10 pounds or maybe doing different exercises or – some some other type of conditioning, but he's Guerrero Jr. This guy has an 80 grade hit cool, hit tool. Not I don't think almost any players ever received that as a prospect. Hit the ball even harder last year, and I think the transition to first base too will help out his fielding. He should be a lock for 30 home runs too. I like the pick, and, and I like the the calling out the best shape of my life because it is definitely that season as players return to spring training. We hear that. Time and time again, but losing 40-plus pounds, there's there's probably some truth to that, that he actually is in the best shape of his life. And I think that can help him a lot. Uh, we saw – I mean, he was already a great player at, at the weight that he previously played at, uh, more so in the minors. He, he had that kind of historic minor league numbers, was one of the best, most anticipated prospects that we've seen in quite some time. Um, and we know he has the power, too. I think it, it's just he hits a whole lot of ground balls is the thing that kind of hurts him. But that's something that conditioning could potentially help with, be able to get that backside through more and help with the launch angle perspective. I think we could see uh, the finally see the breakout for Vlad. He, what, he's only going to be like 22 next year, too. So I, there's a sense that it's coming at some point. I have no problem uh, with, with he's definitely, I think, in the top 10 at this position. I actually have him a couple spots higher. Uh, but I, I like the pick a lot, and I think he's he's obviously got all the talent in the world. It's just a matter of time. But number 10 for me, um, actually, I think this may be a topic of debate. I, I Looking at your list, I think you may like him a little bit more, Adam. But <laughs> I went with Max Muncy, the Dodgers first baseman, uh, who's a multi-talented guy on defense, can play a couple different positions, plays a little second base, 
think he slotted in at third from time to time as well. Uh, so I like the defensive versatility, uh, but he's, he's mostly an average glove at first base, which nothing really wrong with that. Good uh, to even great power. He, he's top 30 home runs a couple different times and career OPS of 843 certainly is impressive. The reason I uh, was kind of hesitant on Max Muncie is it's not a super long track record for him. We've really only seen like the two good seasons and what I believe is 2018 and 2019. Uh, yeah, those were the years where he topped 30 home runs. And the batting average kind of holds him back for me too. A lifetime 236 hitter. We saw that get as low as 192 last year. So a little bit of, of contact issues is, is mostly why I had to hold De uh, Muncie down in my rankings. You're right, talking about how Muncie hasn't been this productive for so long, and there's certainly some truth to that. I think Muncie belongs in this new category of players who, once they have this late career change, they're ready to go, and they're firing in all cylinders. So I know that he had a down 2020. It's, it's safe to be cautious for him, but I think a lot of first basemen on this list had a really down 2020, with the exception of the two MVP winners, of course. But... <laughs> Nevertheless, he was worth 10 war in, from 2018 to 2019, and I think there is reason to believe that he can bounce back, be a 30-homer player, and keep up a really good on-base percentage too, even if he doesn't have the lowest average. Then moving on to my number nine pick, I put Reese Hoskins. So honestly, I did not think I was going to put Hoskins in the top 10, but then I looked into it, and he was really hyped up as a rookie. He sold like 18 homers and – a fine, a very small number of games, and he kind of like fell through a little bit just because of his defense. And people thought he was going to hit about forty home runs when he's more of a yeah. thirty homer guy. He's still a thirty homer threat. He's not a great defensive first baseman, but he's solid on base percentage too. So he's he's been pretty consistent throughout his career with his power and his on base percentage. So that's why he's ranked a little bit higher than Vladdy for me. And I actually had Reese Hoskins at number nine on my list as well. So I, I agree with you 100%, Adam. Uh, he reminds me a lot of Max Muncie personally. It, it's, you know, the same same power potential. Uh, that it, it really hasn't been that long of a track record for Hoskins either. He'll be entering his fifth season. Uh, we perhaps have seen um, more sustained peaks for Muncie, I would say. But that first year when Hoskins came up and was just hitting all those home runs, just really did make me buy into that power potential as well. And, and making me believe he could be a 40 home run guy. He hasn't followed that up since. And the batting average is also kind of an issue for him, a lifetime 239 hitter. But I mean, you see the power manifested in the lifetime 861 OPS, and he is an elite on base percentage guy as well. The glove isn't all that great. Um, Muncie actually probably has a better glove. So maybe I should have flip flopped those guys in my rankings looking back, but I think they're pretty close. I would say Hoskins has been doing this a little bit longer than one C and he's a little bit more predictable too. So I, I would still think your rankings are well within reason. Then moving on to number eight, I really want to put him higher, but I put Pete Alonso as my eighth pick. He's the rookie home run king. He slugged 53 homers in 2019, but he definitely fell down in 2020. He still matched 16 homers and, his walk rate and his strikeout rate were within career norms. He's actually the only first baseman predicted, predicted by a steamer and depth charts of 40-plus home runs this season, and I would not be surprised if he tops that. I, I think I'm a little bit wary because he did have that sophomore slump, and he's still very new at the major league level. 
And I'm kind of in the opposite boat, Adam. I, I had Pete Alonso quite a bit higher up on my list. And I was just like looking for a reason to put him lower. Because I, for whatever reason, I don't love him. I know, um, I mean, I ultimately I had to put him higher because that 2019 season was so amazing with the 53 homers, 120 ribbies, 103 runs. He had a 260 that year too. Uh, but he did see the average duck down to 231 last year. And it was pretty bad in the second half of 2019 as well. So there, there's a lot of swing and miss in his game and some contact issues. But as powerful a bat as, as anybody else in all of baseball. Uh, and the glove actually pretty good uh, for Alonzo too. I know it's not great, um, but it's 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 not uh, not such a liability to where I would have to discount him too much. But, yeah, I would like to see him improve the contact a little bit, but that light tower power, man, that, that certainly plays for me. So I have him a little bit higher up on my list. Number eight for me uh, was actually Vlad Jr., so I wasn't too far off from your ranking on him as well. I'm excited to see him move over, play a little bit of first base. It's going to be a stacked lineup for the Jays. So I think the, the counting stats are going to be there for sure for him. And it's, like I said, just a matter of, of when, not if, for when Vlad breaks out. Especially the Blue Jays having George Springer at the top of the lineup. I still think DJ LeMahieu is the best leadoff hitter in all of baseball, but Springer could certainly challenge him for that. He is a monster there. He can still hit 30-plus home runs from the leadoff spot. You don't see that every day. So he will certainly get on base a lot and set up for Vlad Jr. That'll be a very, very fun lineup and, and a tough AL East division. And speaking about players in the AL East, Luke Voigt is my number seven pick. He was the MLB home run leader last season. and I've always had a – a good feeling about Luke Voigt ever since he came up to the Yankees and was traded to the Cardinals. He also does this really hilarious thing where every time it's a home run, he has a little like hop step. I don't, I don't think he means to do it on purpose, but he just has like a little, like he walks and just like a little hop. So every time it happens, I, I know he's doing that somewhere. <laughs> so he, he's, he's just excited, that. man. Yeah. He's just, he's just happy. And he's built like an absolute tank. I, I've seen this guy's workout routine. He's, he's so, so strong. He reminds me of a younger version of Matt Holiday a little bit. And he has great power too. Definitely should hit 30 home runs this year. And he'll really get to do this over a full season. And people a little bit wary because of this abdominal injury back in 2019. But that seemed like a one-time thing. He put all those injury concerns to bed in 2020. He did. He had a remarkable 2020 season, as you said, leading the majors in home runs with 22. And that's the power that's always been evident for Luke Voigt with an 891 OPS. Spoiler alert, I actually have him as number seven on my list as well. So it's great to see our baseball minds agreeing uh, tonight, at least a couple times already, Adam. But yeah, Luke Voigt definitely strikes me as a guy who's in position to move up higher on this list. I just need to see him do it a little more consistently, which I mean, he hasn't been an everyday player for, but like a little less than two years now. Uh, so it'll, it'll, I think it will click for him, and he's, he's only going to be 30 next year, perhaps a little bit of a late bloomer. But, hey, when, when the Yankees have Greg Bird ahead of you on the, on the depth chart, I guess that's that's what happens. But awesome bat in that ballpark, absolutely. And he's not a, a batting average liability by any means either. 274 batting average uh, is his career line there, 363 on base percentage. So he, he does all of it at the plate. And the glove's not really bad either. And, yeah, he, he is a tank. Very, very in shape, that Luke Voigt. Um, great, great power build there for him to be able to mash some home runs. Uh, so exciting player to watch. Feel great about him at number seven and maybe top five next year. Mm -hmm. 
I agree with you. He does take advantage of the Yankee Stadium right field porch. Has his fair number of oppo tacos, as they like to say. <laughs> but I, I do think he's a bit of a liability at the glove. Oftentimes, the Yankees actually late in the game if they're ahead. They'll move LeMayhew to first base and put in Tyler Wade as a defensive replacement. So he would be more of a DH if they they had another first baseman that was better. And I think even when they have Mike Ford in the games, Mike Ford usually plays first base and voids the DH. So he is a bit of a liability there. And my net spit is also a bit of a liability to glove too. That's Jose Abreu. He's never been a great defender. Might be the worst defensive first baseman on this list. But he has to be this high because he played out of his mind last year. He won the AL MVP. He's always had like this great pop and bats around 300, but he really helped himself out with the on-base percentage. And the slugging was just insane. It was over 600, which you really don't see every day. I think the thing that's wrong with Abreu is that usually his on-base percentage is pretty low, and he had a really high bat ball in play this year as well. So I want to see him do this over a full season, but of course I wish this guy all the best. He's been very consistent power-wise throughout his career, and he's kind of your prototypical first baseman. Very well said all around there on Abreu. Had a couple spots higher, but not much, I, and I mostly agree with the assessment there. It was 2020 seemed like a little bit of an outlier for him, which is, is bound to happen in a 60-game season, but Really, everything went right for him there. And yeah, the, the slugging percentage catapulting off the charts, um, but always has been a pretty low OBP guy, kind of a free swinger there. But And the defense is as bad as well, but he's been remarkably consistent at the plate uh, when it comes to you know batting average, home runs, and RBI. He's usually been at like a shoe-in for 30 home runs and gets 100-plus RBI almost every single year. Uh, so I mean, the bat is legit for sure, and and I, I like Jose Abreu a lot. Like I said, I got him a couple spots higher up on this list. Uh, but number six for me uh, was a guy who, kind of similar to Abreu, had very, very strong track record. I've been doing it for years and years, uh, been doing it even better, I would say, which is why, well, I guess I didn't rank him higher. But he's declined a little bit, and I should probably tell you who it is at this point. It's Paul Goldschmidt, the Cardinals' first baseman, who was – probably number one uh, if we would have been doing this list for years and years and years when he was a member of the Diamondbacks. The bat has declined a little bit, but it hasn't you know, completely eroded or anything. He's still giving you 30-plus home runs, and maybe he's not batting 300-plus every year, but it's still a respectable 270. The glove is also very strong uh, for Goldschmidt still. That's something that has stuck around, and it's going to be a stronger lineup with the addition of Nolan Arenado, so I think that should help some of his stats as well. I wish he still still stole bases. That was always a very exciting part of his game in Arizona. But if he was still like a, a 30 homer, 20 steal guy perennially, I, I would be hard pressed to maybe put him ahead of, of who I do have at number one. I don't want to say his name yet, but it, it's probably obvious. I really miss him stealing bases too. This guy, who, who was it? I think it was Jeff Bagwell, right? That stole a decent amount of bases and, it's always fun to see players steal, but especially first baseman too, because you never see that happening. And he was like, he, I think he had 30 stolen base seasons before, and he he was just an amazing first baseman. I, I really thought he was on a Hall of Fame track record. He still could be. He's I have him as my Nets pick at number five, and he's an interesting player because he didn't have too many homers in 2020, but he also did well batting average-wise and had a better season by war as well. So I, I think he'll return to the 30 homer plateau and bat around 280 and 
probably about an 800 plus OPS. So he'll still be a great first baseman, but he's not the player he once was. No, he's not. But I, I hope that he can still, and I, I would guess that he's probably still on a contract to be in the Hall of Fame just because how dominant he was those years in Arizona. If he can stay as roughly what he is now for the Cardinals, do it another five or so years, I think he'll be going to Cooperstown, which awesome. Another, he's He's been one of the more fun players to watch coming up in our generation. Uh, but number five for me is as somebody who is a little bit younger and who is going to be 27 next season and has all the power in the world. Uh, I always talk and say nice things about the A's when Ben Rossi's not on, but Matt Olson is is my number five on the list. This guy hasn't done it yet, but dang it, one of these years he's going to hit 40 home runs, and he could even hit 50. He, um, I, I kind of thought he was a better OBP guy than he is. It's a career 338 mark. I thought he walked more than that, but I guess given that his batting average is usually pretty low, maybe that still does walk decently and the OBP just isn't as high as it would be for somebody with a better batting average. It's a career 245 mark for Matt Olson, but power is, is the main thing I love about him. And then the glove is actually really, really strong as well. Uh, on the opposite side of the corner of Matt Chapman, who also has a very strong glove. That's, that's a very fun defensive and offensive, just, just well-rounded infield to watch for the Oakland days. They really might have the best corner infield in baseball. You could also argue the Cardinals have that too. They have Goldschmidt and Arenado too. So I wouldn't be surprised by that. But I have Olsen ranked a little bit higher. He's he's one of the best defensive first basemen in the game too. He's won a couple of gold gloves. And I don't, I don't think he's going to be hitting 50 homers anytime soon. But he you'll be hitting 30, can definitely hit 40. And that on-base percentage has looked better in the past couple of years. Can get it up to 350 a couple of times. And He's still a relatively young player, so that can always grow too. For my number four pick, I put one of Henry's players, Anthony Rizzo, and I've always liked Rizzo. He's he's just a fun first baseman. He's not your Adam Dunn type of player, 40 mm-hmm. home runs, a bunch of strikeouts, a bunch of walks, but he'll hit 25 to 35 home runs, play some good defense, and gets a great walk rate too. He also gets hit by a lot of pitches because <laughs> – he stands really close to the plate, so that helps OBP too. He had a bit of a down year in 2020, but he was also a victim of a 218 batter ball in play. And for those who don't know, the average is 300, so that's very, very low for him. And he should be a good bounce back candidate next season. And I appreciate you giving my guy Rizzo some props. I, I have a spot higher on my list, but. I love that man, and he is kind of an anti-Adam Dunn. He he doesn't have the 40 homer upside. It's it's usually kind of mid-20s, maybe get up to 30 a couple years. Hasn't done that since 2017. Granted, it was 29 homers. I don't know, it was 27 homers in 2019. Sorry, I was looking at doubles. But he uh, great defense, uh, good batting average, usually gets on base at a high rate. That's kind of his, his game there, and getting hit a lot does help. But kind of just the heart and soul of that Cubs team, and – he actually has something that I don't know if anyone else we've covered on this. No, I don't know if anyone else we've covered has a World Series ring, and, and Anthony Rizzo does. I don't know if we've named another player. I know nobody else on my list. No one else on my list, too. That's a really good point. So, hey, he has a lot of street cred in that regard, and he was a huge part of that 2016 run. The whole I just love the prison movement, too. There were so many good commercials of them, and they really hyped him up so well. 
That is, that is one of the better bromances in the game, I would say. Him and KB. And I, I'm going to be very sad if they do get separated after the next season or maybe even earlier if there's a midseason trade. But love me some Anthony Rizzo. Great all-around player. Great leader. Great human being. Cancer survivor as well. So awesome uh, for, for doing that, Anthony. We, we love you. I love you especially. Um, but number four on my list, I know we, we talked about him already. Uh, the other first baseman in Chicago and the reigning MVP in the AL, Jose Abreu, really just all came together for him last year. Uh, I think we pretty well covered it for, for Abreu that he's not that great as he showed in 2020, but he's still a, a remarkably consistent and productive bat at first base, even if the glove is a little bit shaky. So got to give some respect to the reigning MVP. Oh, yeah. He he was very deserving of that award. I was kind of more in favor of Jose Ramirez winning it all just because he had power and speed and defense, but Abreu was by far the best hitter in the American League last year, which is yeah. saying something when you're playing the same league as Mike Trout, of course. Absolutely. Moving on, my number three pick is Matt Olson. Pretty much have covered him as well and pretty in-depth. He's the best, first baseman, best fielding first baseman in all of baseball. He certainly hit 40 home runs. He started to have an above average on base percentage too. Not too many flaws in his game. I would say he doesn't get on base as high as other players and he hits for a low average. And that's probably why he's not higher. There's a couple pits for me that are just a little bit better than him. I think that's fair. I, I don't I don't have a problem with the spot there at all. I think I was just like, what, two spots lower on Matt Olson. So in that same ballpark, uh, but I know my number two, a guy I mentioned that we did disagree with um, pretty pretty heavily in our list, Adam. We don't usually – we're not so far off with our takes, but I, I do have Pete Alonzo at number two, even though I don't love him all that much. I, I'm conscious of his flaws, but I think the reason I had to roll with him at number two is just looking at that ceiling that he showed in 2019. I'm not sure there's another player – on this list or another player in baseball that, that has that kind of upside anymore. I mean, and Paul Goldschmidt certainly used to the guy we're going to mention next at number one is, is close to that, but not like not from a 53 home run perspective. Granted that the batting average is a lot better for the guy yet to be named, uh, but just the heights that we've seen Pete Alonso reach and that he's only going to be 26. I think that, Certainly a case for him to be made as, as a top three player and the position. And he does need to get the batting average a little bit better, cut down on the Ks a little bit. But if he can do that and maintain that power, we, we're talking a historically great player. I really don't think Pete Alonso is a career 231 hitter like he was in 2020. That average should be raised up. It should be at least 250 or so, and he's going to walk a lot. So it's on base percentage being around 350 and I think he does have the most potential in this list. I would not be surprised. He's number two on the list next year, maybe even number one, although it's hard to beat the guy at number one right now. I'm going to go to my number two pick really quickly before we both announce our number one pick. We, it is the same for both of us. Spoiler alert. But Matt Muncie is my number two pick. He had a terribly low 203 bat ball in play last season. I know I've been being that stat with the dead horse right there to, to say, but it's true. If players who have low bat at ball in play tend to positively regress or positively increase next season. We've seen that with Jerry Sanchez in the past. We've seen that with other players too. And Muncie hits the ball very hard, so he should be back in tip-top form. And I think he's similar to a lot of first basemen. This, but I saw just by war, he was really head, heads and shoulders above so much of the competition, and that's why I had it at number two. 
then going to number one, I can safely say for both of us, it is Freddie Freeman, the NL MVP, possibly the best player in all of baseball last season, maybe competing with Abreu and Mookie Betts and a couple others, but he's just a fun guy to watch, especially him and his son too. He's like teaching his son how to hit right now. I think he also just had his third child as well recently. So congratulations to him on that. But overall, he's he does everything right. He has 30-plus homer power. He has great on-base percentage. He hits the ball to all fields. I guess his defense really isn't that great, never been the best defender. His, his offense is so good, though, that he needs to be number one on our list. And it's still an above-average glove. It, it's not you know a liability by any means, I, at least looking at baseball reference. I know sometimes the fan graphs numbers – uh, don't, don't always agree, but it, it's at least decent enough glove. And then the offense is so dominant for, for young Fredward Freeman that uh, have to give him the number one nod, the reigning MVP there as well. It's just so consistent year after year with what he does at the plate. I mean, it's always right around a 300 average. The on-base percentage is always great. And the power was always consistently good and until the last couple of years. It's really upticked. And now it's been like in the thirties and, and showing the, the potential for even more power than he'd showed earlier on. I know he hit 38 of them in 2019 he hit 13 last year in the shortened season. So that would have been a 30 plus pace as well. Uh, it's, it's, it's really the, all the offensive op- upside and a great lineup too uh, with some of the guys we mentioned earlier in the show, Ozzy Albies and Ronald Acuna. Uh, they got the manager sticking around for another couple years as well, so that'll help too. Just love Freddie Freeman, love his game, very well-rounded and an awesome, awesome person too, it seems. I've seen the videos of him teaching his son how to hit too. Those are very entertaining to see. And just seems like an all-around likable guy, great player, uh, very – very awesome and feel great about uh, putting him at number one. I know a lot of Braves fans rightly believe that Ochoa is the face of the team, but Freeman's been the face of the team for longer, and he doesn't bring as much maybe energy that Ochoa does. But he's this quiet leader who pretty much does everything right. He's he's a ball player. That's the best compliment you can give someone like that. I I, I didn't mention that he wasn't the best defender on Fangraphs. They just have him as a really poor defender. I know it's very different from baseball, Revan. So. He probably evens out to being about an average defender, and he's just a likable guy too. So that certainly adds to his charisma of being the number one player in both our lists. It is interesting kind of comparing with him with Acuna that those two guys individually would be the the faces of of any franchise, and to have both of those dudes on one team, and then Ozzy Albies could be the faces of of some other franchises as well. Maybe a a lesser franchise like the Orioles or Royals or Tigers or something. But he's still a good player. But the Braves do have something special there. And, I mean, the Mets do too. That's going to be a fun division to watch. And I would probably ultimately agree with you, Adam, though, that I think just, you know, what Freddie Freeman's been doing for the better part of a decade too, that he probably is the the core of that Braves lineup. He really is. And, I wouldn't be surprised if the Braves have two 40 homer hitters next year in Acuna and Freeman. Freeman hasn't hit the threshold yet, but in 2019, he had 38 home runs and showed an excellent power display last year too. So perhaps he can finally go over the hump. And on that note, that is all the time we have for you guys today. Thank you for tuning in to the Exit Field podcast. And thank you, Henry, for being on. Thank you to everyone who listened. And until next time, this is the Exit Field podcast.